0: So are you a clean freak or are you a slob? I mean, are you neat with everything in your life or are you a huge slob? Are you the person that has your clothes hanging in your closet alphabetically by color? You know, the apricots over here and the zebra print down here on the other end. You got everything lined up perfectly. Or are you the person that arranges your clothes on the floor of the closet, kind of like a, a big, huge basket of crayons in a preschool classroom, and every color can go anywhere it wants? Are you the kind of person that has a cabinet in your kitchen, and all of your best dishes and best bowls, they're stacked just perfectly, and there's like you know, two inches between each one of the stacks, and everything looks really, really, really nice? Or are you the kind of person that has a cabinet where your best plates and your best bowls are also in there with some Spider-Man plates and some Hello Kitty plates and some tailgating egg platters and then about six souvenir cups from you know, Bubba's Barbecue Barn or shoved in there somewhere? If that's your cabinet, if you're the, the souvenir cup guy from Bubba's Barbecue Barn, then, then more than likely no one's ever accused you of doing anything in Bristol fashion. Now what in the world is Bristol fashion? Well, it's a term that showed up more than 170 years ago, and it seems to have originated in an area, a seaport area of Bristol in the southern part of England. Bristol was a place that when the ships had to come into the seaport, they had to go through an estuary to get there. And An estuary, a little marine science for you today, is, is an area where saltwater and freshwater kind of mix. If we look at it in our state in South Carolina, it'd be kind of like Charleston Harbor. And so the, the boats had to go down through this estuary and then, and then show up in the seaport. But the estuary was known in the Bristol area for having dramatic drops of water level on a regular basis. So if you were a captain of a ship and, and you rolled into Bristol for a few days, you might go out and find that your ship was laying over on its side sitting up on the ground because the water levels literally would drop that much. And if you had just come from Portugal and you had a cargo full of olive oil, that wouldn't be good news because that olive oil would be poured out all over your boat. So what would you need to do? Well, if you were the captain before you got off of the ship, you would turn to your crew and you would say, hey, make sure everything is put in Bristol fashion. In other words, make sure everything's tied down. Make sure everything's in order. Make sure everything is neat. It all needs to be where it is. Because if it wasn't, then you would come back and your ship would be in chaos. And your cargo might be spoiled or ruined. That word, Bristol fashion, the term was something that had been used in another way for a long, 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 long time. Long before anybody said Bristol fashion. In fact, it's the, fr- the term that you probably know better than Bristol fashion, and that's ship shape. We know what ship shape is, right? It means you have everything in order. It's all neat, it's all clean. Everything needs to be ship shape. Well, there is a type of Bristol fashion that every single church desperately needs. There is a, a way of being ship shape that every single church has to have. In fact, if the church doesn't have it, then the church will end up in chaos. And the church might end up spoiled and ruined and may even die. This kind of ship shape is extremely important. And so what kind of Bristol fashion are we talking about? What what kind of ship shape life are we talking about for the life of the church? We're going to look at the very first church as a way to, to try to find and see what an ordinary life of ship-shaped living would look like. We're going to look in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, the second part. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Last week, we talked about how the first church was committed and devoted to the truth about God. They were committed to the teachings of the apostles. If a church does not make a continual devotion to the Word of God, to the truth of God that's clearly laid out in the pages of the Bible. If a church fails to make a commitment to God's truth, then eventually that church will fail to be a church. If there's not a commitment to the truth of God, then the, the church will no longer be a gospel church. One day Jesus was talking to some religious leaders and he was giving them kind of a case history on someone. And in the middle of his teaching, he said this, Luke chapter 16, verse 29. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. See, many people rejected the resurrection of Jesus live and in person. As it was all unfolding before their eyes, they rejected that it was all happening. And still today, there are people that reject the truth about the rising of Jesus from the dead by the power of God. They reject it. Interestingly, though, Jesus points to the Old Testament as the path to find out the truth about him. He points to the things that have already been written down. From time to time, I'll hear somebody say, well, I don't believe in the Bible, but I do believe in the miracles of Jesus. Well, that's noble, that's good, but Jesus, on many occasions, multiple times, pointed out that if you want to know the truth about him, if you want to know the truth about salvation in him, if you want to enjoy the truth about him, you should look into what had already been written down. So the first church, the early church, they were committed to the truth of God because Jesus was committed to the truth of God. They were also committed to fellowship. They were continually devoting themselves to fellowship. That is the Bristol fashion that every church needs. That's the the ship shape that we're talking about. Every church needs to be sure that they're shaping their life around fellowship. Because if they don't, then when pain comes and when conflict comes, when cultural influence comes, when social attacks come, then the church will not be able to stand. She will keel over, end up on dry ground, and chaos and ruin will follow. Put another way, if the church is not continually devoted to the concept of true Christian fellowship, eventually she will cease to be the church. So what is true Christian fellowship? Well, we're going to kind of unpack that for a few minutes here, and we're going to start off with two dangerous words. What are two of the most dangerous words in the life of the church? What are two words that have possibly caused more damage in the life of the church than any arguments or conflicts over theology or music styles or immoral influence from society. Well those two words go like this. Fellowship hall. <laughs> yeah, you weren't expecting that, were you? Yeah, fellowship hall. You see, when when we hear the word fellowship, we immediately start thinking about, you know, that, that room, you know, where we have, you know, chili in the winter. You know, and, and we have fried chicken in the spring, and we have watermelon in the summer, and we have bacon, you know, in the fall. Now, of course, I hope most of you know that the fried chicken and the bacon, well, those are commandments from the book of Love of course. And, and we know that those things are okay, and that we can go along with that. So, so the fellowship hall is, is not an evil place in and of itself, and, and eating food in the fellowship hall is not evil in and of itself. But what's happened is we have lost the concept of true Christian, true biblical fellowship because we've gotten distracted with fellowship through things like potlucks and picnics and pool parties. They aren't bad things, but they have pulled us away from what true fellowship is. So what was fellowship like in the first church? And what should fellowship be like in this church or any church that claims the name of Jesus? Well, the word that Dr. Luke uses here for fellowship is a word that, that goes like this, koinonia. And it, and it means that they had everything in common. It means they were, they were linked together. They were connected together. They were, they were partnering together. It means that they had a participation in, in what they were doing in life. It was a shared life. It was a family. So if you're a member of Holland Avenue Baptist Church... If you're someone who's been attending for a long time, does this feel like your family? Or is this just a really nice group of people that, you know, you like being around sometimes? Some people have reasons for feeling like that a church is not their family, that they don't feel connected. Some of those reasons sound like this. Well, I haven't officially joined the church yet. Or, well, the pastor hasn't visited me. Or, well, I had a, a bad situation at a previous church. Or I grew up in another denomination. Sometimes they'll say things like this. Well, I work a lot, and I go out of town a lot. I, I have a hard time sitting in, in pews for a long time. Well, I, I can't get up early enough for a Sunday school class. I, I, I'm not particular about the music, and I, I'm not really big on business meetings. And, and I'm vegan, and I don't like how the pastor always talks about Bacon. So, you see, there's lots lots of reasons that people give for feeling like, well, the church just really doesn't feel like family to me. But here's the thing. All of those reasons have nothing to do with true Christian fellowship. They're not connected to the basics of true Christian fellowship. In fact, the basics of true Christian fellowship have nothing to do with any one particular church, including Holland Avenue. The basics of true Christian fellowship are connected somewhere completely different. The Apostle John was writing to some of the earliest Christians in a place in the area that we know as as modern-day Turkey. And this is what he wrote, 1 John 1, verse 3. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, fellowship doesn't start in the fellowship Hall. Fellowship by definition, Christian fellowship, starts by being in Christ. It starts with Jesus. So if you are not in Christ, if you are not a Christian, if you have not repented of your sin and and pleaded with God and cried out to God to save you, then you are not a part of God's family. You are not a part of his church, and you cannot enjoy any of the aspects of what it means to have a shared life with other Christians, what it means to be in God's family. You can't experience the shared life because you're not in Christ. And in essence, you, you are going maybe to this church or maybe to another church, and, and you like the church, but that's kind of all you're doing. You're just kind of hanging out at the church, and you're enjoying it, and, and every now and then you know you're eating some fried chicken. Now, don't get me wrong. We're glad you're hanging out. <laughs> Continue to hang out. But, you know, one of the reasons that we are starting this Next Steps ministry in the life of the church is is we are wanting people to engage in kingdom work. We're wanting people to do more than just hang out. We're we're wanting them to enjoy what it means to be in relationship with God in such a way that they are in relationship with others and in such a way that they're in relationship with people who don't even know Jesus outside of the church. And another reason we are promoting our Next Steps Ministries is you may be hanging out And you don't know Jesus. And so we want you to know Jesus. We want you to find what it means to be in the family, to be a part of this shared life. And we want you to find it in such a way that it's much more in the biblical relational way than just shaking my hand at the front of the church. See, when we look into the scriptures, we see a a seriousness about what it means to be a part of God's church. So we want to be serious about church membership. We don't want to be easy about church membership. Why? Mark Dever, who pastors Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., he says this, As we cultivate a serious approach to church membership, that cultivates a culture of evangelism. In other words, when we're serious here, we will be much more serious away from here. He goes on to say this, We encourage members to stay around after the services, to talk with each other and with other people. We encourage them to have deliberately spiritual conversations. As we are built up, the body of Christ will be attractive to people. We build this community not just for ourselves, but for those outside. The discipleship is what makes you shine like a star in the dark night, and that affects your evangelism. We want to build our people up. So that when they are distributed throughout the world during the week, they are healthy, happy, and evangelizing. Love that. We, we want you to be healthy and happy. I mean, that, that's kind of a goal of ours on Sundays. You know, we kind of don't want you to leave this building, go in the parking lot, and go, oh, those people stink. You know, man, can we just get to lunch? We want you to be able to leave saying, there, there was something about the person of Jesus that, that I caught this morning. And listen, that's not going to happen every morning. I'd love to tell you that every single time you come to this church, boy, it's just going to be clicking and it's all going to work right. But it's not. You know? Some Sundays you'll come and, and it'll be great. And other Sundays you may just be here. And you may not get anything out of it. But you know what? Being here is getting something out of it. Just being connected to the family is important because you may not get anything out of it, but you might help someone else find the glory of Jesus and you may not even know it. There's something beautiful about what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And the reason we want to be so serious about what it means to be a part of His church is we want to evangelize well. We want to be happy and healthy people. Listen, don't take this the wrong way, but if you're one of the most miserable, grumpy, cantankerous, rude people in the world, please do not put our sticker on your car, right? I mean, really, you know, we we want to not present ourselves as perfect and always doing everything right, But, but we do want to generally say, you know, we're trying really hard to honor God and to love people our seriousness about membership affects our evangelism. Because here's the thing. At the end of the day, if we're happy and healthy, that opens up a lot of doors. See, if we're happy and healthy in Jesus, it begins to to put together a whole new concept of what happens in the church and what happens in the parking lot and what happens in our homes and what happens in our lives. Our lives become open doors for the gospel as we are happy and healthy in Jesus. But if our approach is just to ask you a, a couple of questions, or to shake your hand, or to say, hey, they're coming from another church, and to put your picture up on the on the bulletin board in, in the hall, and, and hey, we're just hey, this is great, everything's gonna be if if that's our approach, it is possible we could actually close the door of evangelism in our church. How? Well, because that family that joined with the guy who used to be the deacon at the other church, we might find out months later that at their previous church that he was being unfaithful to his wife. And almost everybody in the church suspected it, but, but he left because he thought, I'm going to go to a new place, and I can hide out there for a little while longer and, and continue in my sin, and maybe nobody will know what's going on. I've experienced that. <laughs> Or it could be that the other family that recently joined, well, well, she's, she's one of those cantankerous people. I mean, at the, at the annual church conference of the last church, she voted against singing all seven verses of Just As I Am. You know, no way, huh? we ain't doing that, you know. Just, just difficult. Or it could be that, that the young guy who always wears the, the really nice sport coats and the good ties, and that he just recently joined, well, he may have just come to town and he joined the church just because he thought it would be good for his business. You see, if we're easy, if we're lazy about church membership, it's not good for the church, it's not good for the person, it's not good for the gospel, and it's not good for the lost. And why is it not good for the lost? Well, because directly or indirectly, the church will become a place that is comfortable with the potential of being hypocrites to the community. Not people who are struggling. I hope that when people meet you, they do not see a smiley, phony Christian. I hope that they see someone who struggles in life, who is having to fight for joy in their salvation, not someone who's phony. But if we take membership so easy and so light, we begin to be a place in the community that they smell the hypocrisy. And guess what? The community can smell it from miles away. And can I just say that, thankfully, I feel like we smell good right now. I mean, I I love meeting people in the community and hearing about some of your lives. In fact, I'm blown away sometimes. Some of you are doing things I had no idea you were doing. And you know what? No one else knows that you're doing it except for the people that you're impacting. So keep doing it. Keep up the great work that will never make the bulletin. Keep up the great work that will never have a slide before church on Sunday morning. Keep up the fantastic work that you're doing for Jesus in the little corners of your life. Thank you for being that. If we approach membership like Jesus did, though, we'll create a, a completely different atmosphere. We'll create an atmosphere where where the church really is a family, not just nice people that shake hands with one another on Sunday morning, but people who are really in the ditches of life with one another. And a true family of God, a a group of people who are truly sharing life together, that, that has an impact on the community. They begin to want what we want. So how did Jesus talk about church membership? Luke 9, verse 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So the instructions from Jesus on being a part of his group, being a part of his kingdom, involve you dying to yourself and denying yourself. We're going to put that on the church sign this week. We'd love for you to come join our church. Die to yourself first. I'm sure we'll have lines of people outside the door, right? Strong words from Jesus. So what does it mean to deny yourself? Well, it doesn't mean just be moral, work hard, and attend church. That's not what it means to deny self. When Jesus uses this kind of language, what he's saying is that that you're supposed to believe in him in such a way that he has sway over all of your life. To deny yourself and follow Jesus means that Jesus becomes the biggest controller and influencer of your culture. Not the culture. See, we're in a a world today where we're constantly talking about how much our culture needs to change and how wicked our culture is and how dark our culture is. And that is very true. But the gospel is targeted, not general, but specific. The gospel is targeted for hearts. And so to deny yourself, to take up your cross, to follow after Jesus, means Jesus becomes the influencer, the controller of your culture. In other words, we put on some gospel sunglasses and we look at everything in life through those glasses. We learn to look at every situation at home and every situation at work and every situation standing in line in the store at Christmas shopping and any other time in life. We begin to look through those things through the eyes of the gospel. And what happens when we do that is our individual culture begins to change but guess what within the church our culture in the church begins to change and then guess what as our culture begins to change together then when we leave this place we begin to make an impact on the culture outside but it starts with jesus influencing our culture first when we talk about membership the way jesus did using the idea of denying self we have greater freedom with lost people how Well, because we'll begin to be serious in the ways we need to be serious, but we'll begin to stick out in the same way that Jesus stuck out. So how did Jesus stick out? Well, Jesus was a friend of sinners. Jesus spent time with sinners. Jesus, according to Scripture, spent time with tax collectors With criminals, prostitutes, social outcasts, people whose lifestyles were contrary to the truth of God. These are some of the people that Jesus strategically spent time with. Now, when Jesus spent time with them, he didn't shake their hand, get them to fill out a card, and put them on the rolls. That's not what he did. He did not approve of their sin. He did not condone their sin. He didn't say their sin was no big deal, but he loved them in their sin, and he called them out of their sin. One day, he loved and called a particular woman out of sin. It was a woman who had been caught in adultery. She was about to be stoned to death, and and Jesus steps in, changes everything, and then he looks at the woman, and with a very clear command, this is what he said to her. John 8, verse 11. I do not condemn you. Go. From now on, sin no more. Now, was this lady really going to be able to walk away and never sin again, never do anything wrong again? No, she she would have to be perfect in order to do that. But don't miss the scene here. This is not a fairy tale. This isn't, you know, a Grimm's book. This isn't Aesop's fables. This is a woman standing outside And a group of men are about to start throwing rocks at her over and over again until she quits breathing and dies. That's what's happening in this scene. And then Jesus steps in and he saves her. He rescues her. He changes the story. Now, she's not going to walk away and never sin again. She's not walking away perfect and never going to do anything wrong. But she's walking away with a completely different perspective on sin. And she's walking away with a completely different perspective on adultery. Why? Because she had crossed paths with the Son of God. Because she had engaged with the person of Jesus Christ. See, she was going to be compelled to no longer love her sin. She was going to be compelled to love Jesus. She was going to be compelled to follow Jesus, not because she had to, not because someone at the church or the, or the preacher told her she had to, but she was going to be so overwhelmed and so stunned at the love of Jesus that she was going to be compelled to go and live her life in a completely different way. Listen, true Christian fellowship is not a men's breakfast with sausage and biscuits. Although that's great. True fellowship is being overwhelmed and stunned with the love of Jesus in such a way that you are encouraging other people to be overwhelmed and stunned with the love of Jesus. In fact, you are so overwhelmed and so, so stunned with the love of Jesus for your life that you can't help but change how you live and how you talk and what you do. When we sang one of the songs earlier, one of the lines says, our, and I sang it as my. (laughs) I just, I wanted to make it personal. See, the gospel's not this great story that's out there. It's so personal. It is for your life. This woman was about to die, and she experienced the person of the gospel. Jesus saved her. The first church, the first Christians, they followed the example of Jesus. They were serious about God's truth. They were serious about glorifying God. They were serious about loving each other, and they were serious about loving lost people. And that's what made them stick out. That's what made them different in the culture. They, like Jesus, were engaging with lost people. The the early church, the religious church at the time that Jesus was alive, there actually was some kind of bylaw they wrote somewhere that said sinners couldn't come to church. And then the early church, here these people are, they're engaging with people that, that no one would have anything to do with because that's what Jesus did. And they weren't doing it as some kind of community project. They were doing it out of the overflow of who they were. Their shared life, they were a family of God, and their family said, this is too good to keep to ourselves. So what does this shared life look like? What does the family of God look like? Well, I joked with Jody earlier this morning that that nothing that I'm preaching this morning came from any of my notes this week. I have, I have 12 pages of, of notes that I have written and underlined, all these things. I didn't use any of it in this sermon. So I literally could preach this sermon probably five more times and never say anything that I'm saying this morning. So, so there's a whole lot of stuff that can be said about what fellowship, true fellowship, looks like in the life of the church. But we have a new members perspective luncheon today, so I, I can't do all of those. So I'm just going to throw a couple of categories out here. And the first category is one another's. True fellowship is full of one another's. Listen to how the Bible describes how we're supposed to do life together. Be at peace with one another. Love one another. Build one another up. Give preference to one another. Serve one another. Be devoted to one another. Rejoice with one another. Weep with one another. Care for one another. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Give compassion to one another. Pray for one another. Confess your sin to one another. Accept one another. Be truthful with one another. Can you imagine what would happen in the life of the church if that really was taking place? I mean, if, if those things were really being pursued? I mean, can you imagine the impact that would have on your marriage the impact that would have on, on your family, the impact that would have on, on how you do life at school and how you do life at work, if, if our church were pursuing those things, can you imagine the impact that would have on, on how we do the budget, which we're in the budget right now, so you'll be praying for, for how we manage those things. Can you imagine the, the impact that would have on, on how we communicate to the community? Would you imagine the impact, if we were pursuing those one another's, that it would have on lost people outside of this building? Now, we can't do these things perfectly. Let me go ahead and throw that out, all right? We can't perfectly love one another, but we need to pursue it. But we can't do it perfectly. There, there is no perfect church. We're, we're never going to get everything right. You know, we live in a culture today where if you don't like me or you don't like our music or you don't like what we're doing at Holland Avenue, there's hundreds of other churches you can go to. You know what? The early church didn't have that option. They only had each other, and they desperately needed one another. They had to learn to love one another. It wasn't an option for them, as someone has said, to go find another McCurch. They were committed to those people because they had nowhere else to go. Financial consultant Dave Ramsey says this, business is easy until people get involved. <laughs> it's true, right? Look, there's, uh, there's no perfect people in here. And there never will be. And there will always be some kind of friction. There will always be times where we won't get along or we may disagree on something. But for the most part, if we are fighting hard for the one another's, those times will be few and far between. And listen, we'll get over them fast. I think the thing that kills a church more than anything is folks who just love carrying a grudge. When we are doing the one another's, we'll get over it Because we'll get over ourselves. We'll be so consumed and overwhelmed with the love of Jesus that we'll learn to be offended and then get over it and move on. The early church lived like that. The church is not easy. It's not full of perfect people. There will always be tough times. But I want you to know there's absolutely nothing in the world like the shared life that Jesus created and designed and died to bring to the local church. There's nothing like it in all the world. I was listening to an interview this week with Arizona Congressman David Schweikert. And in the interview, he said, I am a pathological optimist. I chuckled. I was like, "Ah, that's good. He he is obsessive about finding the good thing in whatever is going on. Well, I would say Christians in the life of the church need to be pathological fellowshippers. We need to be the kind of people that are always looking for the grace of God in every situation. We really do need to be the, the glasses half full people. We need to be the people that are bringing healthy, happy truth about Jesus into all of our lives. And guess what? You're going to have some days you don't have it. What I love about our staff is that there are a lot of days I don't have it. I'm not Mr. Happy, Healthy. Woohoo! let's go get them. But you know what? That'll be a day that Tammy is, or that'll be a day that Lindsay is, or that'll be a day that Joanna is, or that'll be a day that Gail is. See, the, the beauty of what it means to do life together is that when you're not happy or healthy, you've got somebody to help. And when someone else is not happy or healthy, you can help them. Pathological fellowshippers is bad grammar, but I like it. We need to be obsessed with looking for the grace of God in all of life. The shared life, the true Christian fellowship life is marked with love for other Christians. It's marked with a lot of one another's. It's also marked with something else very interesting that I think we forget, and that's suffering. True Christian fellowship is marked with suffering, not just hanging out in the fellowship hall. I'm about to read one of the most fascinating group of sentences in the Bible starting with Hebrews chapter 10, that goes like this. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Listen, you can't trick God. You can't fool God. You can't cut a deal with God. You can't negotiate with God. You can't bypass God. And so we would plead with you to come to faith in Christ. And if you do, faith in Christ comes with an amazing promise. But listen to the setup of that amazing promise. Verses 32 and 33. But remember the former days, when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you... Showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Fellowship in the early church was defined with a great deal of suffering. They were mocked for being Christians publicly, they were publicly persecuted, physically persecuted for being Christians. They were thrown into prison for being Christians, and they did this together. This is how they did life together. This was their shared life. They were mocked together. They were persecuted together. They went to prison together. And the ones that didn't go to prison for following Jesus, not for any other reason, The ones that didn't go to prison, the other ones, they would go and and care for them and look out after them. And those people's enemies, when they found out that they were going to sympathize with these prisoners, they went to the sympathizers' houses and they broke out the windows and they stole things and they burned things. They caused all kind of havoc in their homes. And the Bible says that these first Christians, these early Christians, they looked at all the damage of their house and they received all that happened to them. With joy. (laughs) Got to be a misprint, right? (laughs) Those poor scribes, they wrote this down wrong. How in the world did these people have any kind of joy in having their property seized? And having people break and steal their stuff and, and burn their stuff and persecute their friends and put their friends in prison? Why would they have joy in their possessions being taken away? here's why. Because they were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. And they were continually devoted to the fellowship. And being continually devoted to the apostles' teaching and being continually devoted to the fellowship, it reminded them that there was a promise that they had that was bigger and better and greater than anything happening in their lives. And what was that promise? It goes like this. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, you do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. That is true fellowship. That's why this church exists. We gather here in this room We gather in other rooms on this campus. We gather at biscuit joints around town in the morning. We gather in our homes. We gather in the parking lot. We gather at work, at school. We gather at the lake. We gather at the pool. We gather on our pontoon boats. And we gather in those places and we remind ourselves in the middle of all of the darkness that we heard on the radio and all of the darkness that we saw on TV and all of the darkness that we saw on our news app and all of the darkness we keep reminding one another that when our spouses let us down and when our parents let us down, and when our kids let us down, and when our pastor lets us down, and when our fellow church members let us down, and when our politicians let us down, and when our teachers let us down, and when our bosses let us down, and when the economy lets us down, and when the doctor gives us bad news, and when our enemies steal our stuff. In all of those moments, we are still reminding one another of this great treasure that we have. Because salvation in Jesus Christ is our best possession. No one can take it. No one can burn it. No one can break it. Our salvation in Jesus Christ is our most lasting possession. It will be there today and it will be there forever. Our salvation in Jesus Christ is our perfect guarantee. Our salvation in Jesus Christ is our greatest reward. And fellowship, true shared life, the family of God never gets distracted from that. And we just keep telling ourselves over and over again, you know what, we've got something to hang on to. We we have this, this one lasting thing that remains at the end of every pain and every dark moment and every moment of confusion and every moment of stress. We have this one thing. This one thing, it always remains. I love how one song talks about that one thing. It goes like this. Yes. Jesus loves me. Even me. Even me. I stand forgiven and free. Even me. Even me. May God give us strength to sing that song to one another over and over again. May we share in the gospel together. May we share in this life together. And may we strive to truly be the family of God.